What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast, episode 158. I'm Tim Chelsvik. I'm Matt Drury, and I'm excited because we got a special guest today and a guy that knows his stuff in not only deer hunting, turkey hunting, just overall, he's a wealth of information, and uh, I think we're going to have a fun podcast with this guy on. Yeah, he's a certified wildlife biologist, and he's uh, QDMA's director of conservation. We've got Kip Adams in the house. Kip, welcome aboard. What's up, buddy? Hey, good to see you guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. And we appreciate yeah, you, you taking the time. You too. I know we're all kind of having a palate cleanse right now from turkey season. You're still chasing longbeards out in Pennsylvania, right? That's right. Uh, my buddies across the country that were killing turkeys long before our season came in. So uh, we came in late this year. We didn't start till the beginning of May. So uh, we have until the end of this month. So uh, we're right into the thick of it right now. We were off air talking about a tradition that you have with a firearm. Why don't you share a little bit about that with our audience? Because this, this is pretty cool, mm -hmm. man. This is awesome. Sure. Uh, I was very fortunate to grow up in a hunting family. And uh, my grandmother Adams uh, passed down to my dad and then to me uh, an old Stevens uh, single shot 410. And uh, first day that I ever went hunting in my life, you know, as a little kid, I was carrying that with my dad. So the first stuff that I ever shot was with that. Uh, fast forward uh, a, a lot of years later, uh, my young daughter, uh, her first turkey, she shot with that same gun. Cool. And uh, my son Bo now, who's 11, uh, hopefully uh, his first turkey will be with that as well. So, uh, pretty cool to carry that old single shot knowing uh, how many days that i've carried it in the past and that uh maybe another generation of hunters uh, will get to use something that uh, but his great-grandmother shot a lot of game with that, a long that, time ago. that's crazy to me how old is the gun do you think i'm not sure uh my grandmother would be uh, well over 100 today so uh you know back in uh, the late 70s uh, is when i first got to use it so uh it, it was pretty old then so uh yeah you know, 40 some years ago, it was old. So it's, it's really old today, but, uh, pretty cool. Uh, we've taken care of it over the years and, uh, it's amazing, you know, how those old guns, you know, mm -hmm. not a lot of moving parts. So, uh, yeah. you keep them clean and take a little bit of care of them and, uh, they still shoot. Elegant simplicity. And it's, it's interesting that your grandmother passed it down. Cause we've all heard stories about this grandpa's is, this is grandpa's gun, gun yeah. and it, you know, goes to the generations, but it was your grandma's. That was uh, my, my grandpa and grandma Adams uh, were farmers. And on that side of it, uh, you know, uh, my grandmother was the hunter. So uh, my grandpa mm. didn't hunt. Uh, my grandmother did. And then, of course, my father did. Uh, on the other side of the family, uh, my, my mom's father hunted. Um, my grandmother on that side did. So uh, I had one grandparent on each side that hunted. But, uh, yeah, you're right. It is kind of strange that it's. It's uh, my grandmother was the hunter on that side and not my grandfather. I so, bet uh, as oh. your daughter grows older and she looks back, that will be a special connection mm -hmm. for her to, to think that she used, you know, her great grandmother's gun. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, so we're talking about a palate cleanse from turkey season and, and you and I both had decent seasons. We both tagged out, which was great. But now we're kind of shifting gears a little bit and thinking about deer and uh and and you came across an article that uh, outdoor life published into the mind of a running buck and it really challenged a lot of preconceived notions that we have about what happens to to bucks during that time of year yeah you know and and as i was looking at the article and and you and i both about the same time we realized it was an older article but it you know it was the first time i had seen it and it was interesting to me because a lot of the topics that were touched on in there and there was like nine different 
different myths or mm-hmm. something like that. A lot of the topics I hear Mark and Terry talk about all the time. And it's like, oh man, you know, I've heard them say this. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. this is cool. And so I just found it really interesting. And of course, our great friend, Dr. Grant Woods, uh, was quoted several times. And then uh, Kip here was uh, also quoted quite a few times. And I thought, you know what, let's get Kip on and, and just get his opinions and thoughts. And it, it kind of gets us uh, into that deer season mode. Once the summer hits, man, it's full steam ahead. And and uh, we're all singularly so focused. Yeah, right. so, so ready for it. So what one of the things that that I've always thought and have heard is that running bucks travel a lot. They really put on the miles looking for hot does. They're cruising. We hear the term cruising a lot. So what Kip, what's what's behind that? Is that is that true or is is that not exactly the case? Well, it, it, sometimes it is. And uh, one of the cool things today is we have the opportunity to put GPS radio collars on deer. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of deer now across the Whitetails range that have wore GPS collars. So the amount of information that we have gotten in the past decade is just incredible, you know, especially relative to movement. And that's really where a lot of the research is today. We know a lot about what they eat, and how they see and, and all that. But a lot of the, the more interesting data from my perspective or projects have involved how they're navigating the landscape, how they're moving, when they're moving. And so we have this type of information to know. Are they, you know, all over the place during the rut? Are they just holding up during the rut? And what we see time and time again with these movement studies is that uh, bucks are really individuals. Some of these bucks have large home ranges. Some have very small home ranges. Some of them move a lot. Some not so much. And even some bucks with big home ranges don't tend to move all that much. It takes them a long time to get all the way through that. So, uh, we, I think that as we learn more about it, we realize that it's not a one-size-fits-all thing when it comes to how deer move, uh, particularly during the rut of the year. We do know that all deer tend to move a lot more during the rut than at other times. But even uh, within that, some deer, they just move a little bit more than the rest of the year, while some deer, it's just insane how far they travel. They're just all over the dark place. And, and the study that, that you you all referenced, uh, in this article, they talked about, um, the, the, the deer that were collared for this thing, they were talking about, they stuck to a range of like mostly 60 to 140 acres. And I felt like that was very applicable to probably what a lot of guys have to hunt mm-hmm. 60 to hundred acres, you know, 150 acres. Like that's kind of your, it gave me hope. It's like, all right. Cause I always feel like on, on the lease that it's a crapshoot. You know, because it's not big enough. Yeah, just I, I, it's big enough, but the type of ground that it is, Mm. it's more ag than it is timber. I feel like I don't have enough bedding. I don't have enough bedding, and so I always feel like, oh, the neighbors got them, and I'm hoping you know they're gonna come over, spill out, and we plant the food plots and all that stuff. But this kind of gave me hope. It's like, well, maybe they are actually kind of in my area, and I'm just, you know, I have found ways to adjust my tactics Mm -hmm. over the last few years to see them a little bit more. Sure. Yeah, and I think one thing that's cool from a hunter perspective, and, and I tell you, look, I've been lucky. I've been a wildlife biologist for, for well over 20 years now, um, but I am first and foremost a deer hunter. So all of the stuff that I do or hunters I talk to, you know, I try to take uh, stuff that we learn through research and relate it from a hunting end because that's how I think about it. You know, I don't think about it as, you know, just a scientist or as a researcher. I think about it, how am I going to use this to get closer in the fall or help others get closer in the fall? So, uh, you know, the way I look at this is 
by, we're lucky today we have the opportunity to use game cameras, you know, way more than ever before. So uh, with cameras, if we're using them, you can get a really good idea on, okay, some of these bucks that I'm seeing, am I seeing some of them over and over and over again where it's like, you know what, I probably am right in its core area where if I choose to pass this deer, I at least stand a good chance of seeing him again in the future versus, you know what, I've pulled 50 cards, I've looked at 10,000 photos, and I have two pictures of a certain buck. You know what? Probably better cause that you might be at the fringe of where he is, uh, range is or his home range, or maybe just an excursion where it's the only time he's ever been there. So um, I think as hunters, we can use some of the, the cameras and technology available to us to really help us decide with those particular deer you know, how killable they probably are for us. Yeah, I think everybody, you know, can can recall getting a trail camera photo of a buck one time and it was, it was like some giant stroll through and, you know, it's like, where'd he come from? And then you're hunting a deer that probably is not really there to begin with. Like you said, he just so happened to be strolling through, you know, mm-hmm. that's, I, I feel like that happens, you know, at least once a year to me. Yeah, because we always hear from people that, you know what, I've got a million cameras or pictures and, uh, you know, it's the only one I ever got of this deer. Yeah. Or do this all the time and he got killed five miles away. But that, you know, some of that research with a movement too that goes, looks at excursions, you know, where deer are excursion is defined as, you know, a deer leaving its home range, you know, and going one to five miles away over the course of just a couple of days and coming mm-hmm. back. So, uh, and we know now the more and more bucks do this during the rut and uh, likely, you know, breeding related they smell a doe or they're chasing or whatever we don't know exactly why but we know they're doing this which i think from a hunting man gives us hope too because and i tell people you know what particularly during the rut even if you aren't seeing what you want to see while you're hunting keep going because that bruiser from down the road you know he might be a mile away tonight might be the night that he goes through your property so yeah you it, never uh, know well, i think it can you know deer uh, they can help us both in so but uh got to be there to see it happen so uh it's sometimes uh, you know if you're tired or you don't want to get up in the morning just knowing that helps me get out of bed sometimes uh, that hey today could be the day That's yeah right. n- nothing beats time on stand now how about the moon phase dictating when does are bred there this is, has been believed for a long time uh a, a good friend of mine you know charlie alzheimer who, who's now passed away uh Phenomenal deer photographer, phenomenal behavioralist with deer, you know, great writer. And, and uh, he really presented this and, you know, and had followers around the country that believed this, partly because it seems like, yeah, that lines up. The moon we know impacts fish and some other things, but uh, it just seemed like, you know what, this probably does impact deer too. Uh, however, this is, this is very clear with all of the research. It absolutely does not impact breeding dates zero correlation with when does are being bred in the moon phase um that doesn't mean that the moon doesn't have something to do with travel and uh you know we haven't shown we being researchers in general haven't shown that the moon does impact some of this travel however just as a hunter and i I personally have seen it enough times and talked to enough good hunters that have seen this that i do believe the moon does have some impact on some deer travel Mm -hmm. even though we haven't shown it yet and I think that's what a lot of hunters are seeing and just misinterpreting this as, okay, this is what's leading to breeding dates. But uh, it, it's very clear. We can pull fetuses from does in the spring that have been you know, hit by cars or, or harvested or whatever, um, measure them using the fetal scale and back data and know exactly the day that that doe was bred. And actually, the founder of QDMA, Joe Hamilton, uh, developed this technology a long time ago back with uh, research he was doing in deer pens. 
Um, so, you know, we know exactly how to figure out when does were bred. So because of that, we can then look year in and year out at when that full moon falls in the fall to see, hey, does this move the breeding dates or not? And we know it absolutely does not. So we know the moon does not impact breeding. It possibly impacts some movement. And uh, I, I just know too many good hunters that I trust and things I've seen to think, you know, there is some impact there on some deer movement. We just don't have that part figured out yet, but mm-hmm. definitely not impact an actual day. Those does are being bred. Yeah, Mark's been pretty adamant about that for a long time, you know, and and his and Terry's stance more or less is, you know, definitely it, it in the moon phase, much like the weather, it's impacting what visibility you have on the rut. You know, sure. it, if it's hot out, that that rutting activity takes place in the nighttime Mm -hmm. if it if the moon's you know backwards that rutting activity tends to take place in the nighttime but if the moon's right the weather's good you're you're gonna see it amplified when you're in the stand during the daytime and so you know that's one of the things about deer cast even that i feel like it's such a part an intricate part of that algorithm and tool like you set your peak estrus day it's preset for you we have some presets kind of from around the country and, and but that's not even perfect like it you need to go in and preset it to what you know to believe that you know whether talking to your local game agencies mm-hmm. or whatever preset that peak estrus date and it's going to slide the entire scale of the 13 phases to fit your area and, and then from there the the weather and, and all the different factors that we put into each phase of the season will take care of what movement you should be seeing right. i mean it really is an intelligent way to look at it and i think it really lines up with what you're talking about here in your findings kip no i think so too and i mean there's so much about the movement that you know we still don't understand relative to you know, temperature, barometric pressure, you know, all of this. And, and I think, you know, deer are such a complex animal that it's just not as simple as, you know, this factor or that factor. So um, I think that like, what you guys do with DeerCast, I think is really cool. Um, you know, and I think in the future, we'll continue to learn more and unlock some of those secrets. But uh, particularly with regard to, you know, we don't have the opportunity to hunt, you know, every day of the, the season or as much as we want. So anything that we can do, to study and learn and just tip the odds into our favor a little bit more, like with DeerCast there, I mean, I think that's great. And at the same time, if somebody does that, that just gets them a little more involved with what's going on. You know, rather than just being a participant, you kind of go and sit, you're actually engaged with it. You're making yeah. decisions based on it, yeah. which just brings you closer to the whole thing. And, and I think that's excellent. I think that keeps people hunting longer. It helps them be better mentors to others that they're teaching. And I think that's all good for what we're doing. No doubt. Now, most deer hunters will dread a warm front during the rut. Now, yeah. What, now, Kip, what is what does the research show about warm fronts? Do they really shut things down? I dread a warm front anytime when we get into the fall of the year, and partly just because you know deer are built as you know to be so insulating that uh, you know they just don't like to be hot. I mean, it's just counterproductive for them to, to waste energy to try to keep themselves cool at a time of the year when you know they're trying to save all of that fat they can. So yeah, uh, yeah anytime that it gets warm when deer are in a winter coat, and particularly a big heavy winter coat, it uh, uh, it just drives me crazy. So uh, I don't like to see that coming at all. Now, does it affect when the does are bred though? It, it not necessarily days when they're being bred. They're still going to be bred about that same time, mm-hmm. but uh, they're definitely going to be bred during cooler parts of the day. Sure. You know, uh, when we get, you know, in the fall, say, you know, it's 
we have a nice heavy jacket on and it gets really hot, we just take that jacket off and we're okay. And, you know, deer can't do that. So they compensate behaviorally by just spending more time being active when it's cooler rather than when it's so hot. So uh, those does aren't controlling, oh, shoot, it's warm. I'm going to hold off being in esters for another day or two or till the next cold front. No, they can't do that. So they're still being bred over a very narrow window. Mm -hmm. um, this may be during the coolest time of the day, which typically ends up being we can't hunt them. Sure. So a little off topic, but a question I've always wondered about is uh, do do a, a buck's rack, does that – do they lose heat through that? Because I'm just thinking it's attached to their body. It's attached, you know, near their brain. So there's a lot of heat in their brain. Do they do they gain anything by shedding that later in the winter? Like, is that a, a, a heat conservation um, effect for them? No, they they definitely can lose heat through that while they're in velvet. Mm -hmm. uh, but once that those antlers harden, uh, there's no more functional blood supply in that. So uh, once the antlers harden and that velvet comes off, then they're not losing any heat through those. So, gotcha. um, so no, it wouldn't make any difference if those are on or off uh, during the winter relative mm -hmm. uh, to heat that they're saving. Okay. Uh, and how about bucks shacking up with does for several days? What does the, the science say about that? Uh, the science is really clear on this one that, you know, when a doe comes into heat, she'll stay in the heat for 24 to 36 hours. So uh, if a buck, you know, if, finds that doe just before she's in estrus, he absolutely will stay with her. And uh, then when she comes into heat, he may breed her repeatedly during that, that uh, estrus period. And uh, if he's big enough and is able to, you know, he stay with her, you know, he may stay with her that whole time. So technically he might be with her, say for a day until she's almost in heat and then a whole day to two while she's in heat. So, hmm. you know, where some people say, man, you know, I watched this buck with this doe for a day or two days and they're really locked up. Um, that absolutely can happen depending on when he finds her relative to her heat cycle. Okay. Um, or he literally may, you know, find her when she is right at the very end of it, may chase off a younger buck or a smaller buck, breed her and, you know, an hour later be gone and, uh, and on to another one. So, um, but they definitely can be with a deer for, you know, for a day or two, or sometimes a little bit longer that, that absolutely can happen. It seems like the implication there is that you can still have your chance at your target buck because they're not locked down for a full five, six, seven days with one deer. They're going to do their thing, and then they're going to be on the move looking for the next doe that's in heat. Nope, that's absolutely right. And, you know, as, as hunters talk about the lockdown and, you know, there's not much activity, that can definitely be happening during the peak of breeding if, you know, there, there's a lot more does than there are bucks or, or even if that, the sex ratio is very balanced. Um, you know, just where all of the bucks on a particular property have found a doe, you know, that they can be with. So uh, there, there's definitely time periods. And I'm sure you guys have seen that where, man, you're hunting during the run. And, you know, it, it can be the most exciting thing in the world or it can be the, the most boring sit all year long. Zero to 100. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one or the other. <laughs> you know, think, hey, I'm just in the absolute <laughs> wrong spot. So I have hunters tell me all the time, you know, man, isn't the rut your favorite time to hunt? You know, and there's a lot of times it's not, you know bucks are much more predictable before we get into the main part of the breeding. Agreed. So uh, yeah. there's a lot of times I would much rather pick, you know, that time of year to hunt, you know, now I'm never going to miss the, the hunting the rut, at least not on purpose, but uh, I've had a lot more quiet sits during the rut than, uh, you know, than, than I have before that when deer just tend to be on their feet a lot more. The, sure. the best big buck killers I know all hate the rut. Mm -hmm. They all mm -hmm. love, you know, early October, 
they all of you know late mid late December. They, yeah. they just they, like you said, they they kind of can get on a pattern at that point. Uh, but the rut, you just never know what's going to happen. It's a crapshoot. One of the things that I enjoyed out of the article was where you talked about uh, just killing does early. Uh, you know, are, are are you killing a chance? Your odds at a buck potentially being able to breed, you know, breed that doe, or you know, um, uh, will that buck then go leave the property and look for a, a doe that it can breed? And the te- the the um, information that you guys got kind of more or less said, Hey, they're not going to just go looking like they can't. I think Grant Woods is the one that was quoted here. It's like, it doesn't discern whether or not it needs to go to the next Ridge over to find, cause, cause the dough that he was after here is gone. Uh, What do you think about that? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, no, that's right. And and I'm a fan of shooting does early in the year uh, for two reasons. You know, if you're in a situation where, your deer herd is, is very low and you don't have that many does, then there's absolutely value in not shooting them early, you know, and waiting until later to either shoot some or not shoot some. However, if you have quite a few deer, and particularly if you have a lot of deer, there is a lot of value in, in shooting early, um, mm-hmm. partly because then you can remove some of those does and then just have bucks be on their feet more during the rut. Um, personally though, from our end of it, I love to put some meat in the freezer early and if we can hit a bunch of our target doe harvest early in the year, then that allows us to just focus solely on bucks when really the, the good time to kill bucks comes in. And then we can, you know, shoot does where not our best buck stands. And so we're not trying to, to shoot does and bucks at the same time or or kill all of our does late in the year. Uh, so um, I, I am a big fan of shooting uh, of does early and, uh, and don't think that, you know, that's not messing us up at all from a buck hunting perspective as long as we're being smart about not over hunting certain stands or, mm-hmm. or putting additional pressure on bucks uh, prior to the rut. Yeah. So it's always that quandary a doe steps out just before last light later in the season. And you're thinking, how ah, do I shoot her or do I wait to see what else is going to pop yeah. out maybe behind her? I always fail with the choice. I pick. <laughs> Terry always picks the doe and Terry's yeah. killing the doe, but I always think, all right, you know, cause there's so much that goes into just going out on a hunt for, for me, much like you, sure. it's like, all right, I'm here. Gotta be smart. I, and if I'm there, it's usually cause the weather's good. It's like, all right, I gotta mm-hmm. be smart about this. And it never pans out. <laughs> it's not I have a hard, I have an itchy trigger finger. I like shooting does. Yeah. Yeah. You and Terry, Get along well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Thanos of the deer hunting world. Yeah, there you go. Thinning him out. Now, uh, rubs and scrapes. This one, this one really, this one really kind of shocked me because I've always seen rubs and scrapes as kind of territorial markers, as boundaries, but the science shows something that's quite different than that. Yeah, yeah that's right. And so, it's, it's rubs and scrapes both fall into you know the, the communication. Uh, and deer are very social, uh, a lot more social than most people realize. And those are the two primary ways that they communicate. You know, uh, think of something that, that's as sense is or sense of smell is as important as it is to deer, you know, way more so than vision or, or hearing. So, uh, you know, they communicate that way. So that's the perfect way to be able to share information at, say, scrapes, you know, these sites where then all other animals can come in and smell those and see who's there. And, you know, some of the research with this is really cool. The folks at the University of Georgia have identified uh, the, the uh, forehead gland on bucks, and particularly older bucks, becomes a lot more active during the rut than uh, younger bucks. It doesn't change that much during the year, but older bucks, that forehead gland becomes extremely active. And they've identified up to 50 different pieces of information about bucks 
through the glandular secretions. And what so these bucks are then leaving these at these rubs. And, uh, you know, folks will say, I think that they, the deer made this rub to get rid of the velvet. And that might be a little bit true, but it's far more of about a communication standpoint where they'll break that cambium layer in the tree so the deer can smell that. They can see that. It's a visual thing. Then they rub their forehead gland on it. And it's like leaving their calling card there. You know, hey, um, whatever, I'm Joe Blow. You know, I'm a, I'm a four-year-old. I'm a 10-point. You know, I had a broken G2 this year or last year, but it grew back this year. And so all kinds of information about themselves that they leave there through their scent, you know, mm-hmm. dominance, status, all this kind of stuff. So then other deer go through and can pick that up. And, you know, it's a way that they communicate. So so it's not a territorial thing. It's a communication thing. Just like, you know, we leave signs on the you know, telephone pole on a street corner. Mm-hmm. Exact same thing with deer at, at both rubs and scrapes. We have a few guys at the studio here that are known by their glandular secretions. So <laughs> familiar with, with that principle. AKA time and bathroom. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> they spent some time in there. Southern uh, Oklahoma, right? Southern Kansas, several years ago, working with a with a friend, you know, in the middle of this prairie, you know, no trees anywhere. And, uh, you know, about 500 yards away, we could see this little telephone pole. And I said, uh, do you ever put a camera on that? And he said, no, you know, why would I? Out in the middle of every, nothing here. And I said, drive to that right now. I will guarantee you there's deer sign. So we get all the way to it, you know, and they had rubbed it so much over the years that it actually was in like almost an hourglass shape. And mm-hmm. I said, every deer, you know, that uses this area is going to stop here. You know, if I had one camera right here is where I would have it. Um, so it's just wow. such an important part of communication for deer that uh, both rubs and scrapes. And in the research on those show, yeah, lots of different bucks using, you know, a scrape line. So it's not an individual buck that has his own scrape line. Lots of bucks are using those. Um, does are using them to check them out as well. So uh, um, whether it's a rub or a scrape, it's definitely a, a way for deer to communicate and a uh, great place to put a camera and, and see who's in the neighborhood. I thought it was interesting that it was kind of noted that you know, a lot of guys will hunt. When they see a scrape, they'll hang you know a set near it uh, or a scrape line or whatever. And, and the point was made in the article, it's like, well, that deer hit it once and then he kept on moving. You know, it's not like they're mm-hmm. sitting there guarding it. And I, I just found that interesting. You might have more success trying to find the travel corridors going to and from those, you know, scrapes. But sitting over the scrape might not always be your best bet. No, you're exactly right. And, and the research shows that about 85 percent of all scrape use is made at night. So, uh, you know, after dark. So uh, you are absolutely right, Matt. The best way to hunt a scrape is to find those, find where that cover is, and then intercept the buck, you know, just as he's going back to bedding after daylight or, you know, before he gets there at nighttime. So, uh, yeah, scrape hunting can be very effective. But uh, you're right, sitting right over top of the scrape, that's a low odds game. You need to intercept them coming or going to be effective at it in most cases. How about worn-out bucks keying in on food? You know, they, they can lose up to 30% of their body mass, and people kind of think, well, they need to go to recharge their calories. Uh, but the science is showing something that maybe is one of those examples of correlation doesn't equal causation. Yeah, they, you know, deer are built a lot like bears. Everybody knows that bears get as fat as they can during the summer and fall, and then they live off that fat during the winter when they hibernate. Deer are very similar. They just don't go to sleep. You know, they survive winter by all that fat that they have gained in the summer and the fall. Same here. So uh, living off that. So 
as soon as that testosterone level changes enough that, you know what, the deer have said, okay, I am done breeding now. I am back to feeding. Man, uh, feeding locations become dynamite because, you know, those deer know they have to have that, you know, particularly getting into winter. So uh, late season food sources, particularly in really cold environments, uh, are just absolute gold in many cases, as long as they haven't been over hunted too hard. Mm-hmm. You know, you can make deer wait until after dark to get there too, even if they're starving. But uh, if you're smart about how you're hunting them and, um, you know, haven't overpressured deer, boy, as soon as you can get onto some of those late season like that during cold weather at the end of the rut, they can be by far the best butt sit you've had all year. The way it painted the picture, it was like, all right, a 200 pound buck would be 140 after it lost that 30 pounds. And it's like, you know what? Like I killed two S two at the beginning of January mm-hmm. and, and Scott and I were shocked how, you know, how small he was more sure. or less body wise. And it's like, Hey, yeah, he just, he just went all through the rut and, and you know, lost a ton. Down. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's pretty crazy to think about like that. One of the other things I thought was interesting in the article, and I don't remember which at what section it was in, talking about bucks, and I think it was when they were talking about home range, just in general security and them wanting— that trumps all. Yeah, security trumps all. And, and, you know, it made me think about that Roger Sapper 212 uh, and six eighths. Yeah, video <laughs> that we that we just put in Deercast. It's a DoD TV episode, and literally, Roger Sapper's hunting this deer, giant world class animal, and they see a trespasser come onto his property, and we're, and we're filming this. Mark was in the blind with him, and it was film, filming, and the trespasser is upwind. Right, I got that right. Yeah, because he put his wind over that buck. Yeah, and so they're filming this. 212 inch deer laying there and this trespasser is 50 yards upwind of him and that buck never jumped never went anywhere it stayed hidden in that in that it was just some tall grasses or whatever Mm -hmm. and it just it made me think about you know you're in the article it was talking about security trumps all and and especially with older mature bucks and it made me think invisible that that roger sapper buck it was a perfect example Mm -hmm. he was invisible while this trespasser is right who was actively hunting that guy had a gun with him he was ready to go yeah hunter orange he's walking around and that buck never jumped if he would have jumped up he would have been dead you know, I, I would I would die to know who that was and if that guy has seen video of himself at a distance. Yeah, I'm sure Roger has reached out to him <laughs> since then. But if you haven't seen the video, it, it's worth going into deer uh, in Deercast and looking at that. Go to DoD TV section. It, it it's unbelievable to see that deer laying there as this hunter is walking around. It kind of it kind of changes your perception of what you think a deer will do in certain scenarios too. Definitely. So. Security. There you go. <laughs> um, there are a couple other points. We, we want to make sure that we're respectful of uh, of your time here, Kip. How about doe in heat urine? Is that effective? Because there's an awful lot of it out there for hunters to purchase. Yeah, um, it it certainly can be an attraction. There's no doubt about that. You know, uh, deer key in on things. So you'll watch, uh, you know, does that your bucks are chasing them. You know, when a doe is in heat or almost in heat, if she's not quite ready and she wants to get rid of that buck, particularly if it's a younger buck chasing her around, you'll watch. She often will run. She'll stop. You know, she'll urinate and then take off again. But what that's doing is by stopping it, that she knows that buck will stop and then smell that. 
So deer mm. definitely key in on that. Um, however, it is a myth that that is how a buck tells if a doe is in heat. They do not tell from the urine. They actually tell from the glandular secretions that she carries with her. You know, it's on her body, mm-hmm. which makes sense because if you're trying to have, you know, announce that you're in heat and you want a buck to find you, it doesn't do you any good to then leave, you know, that calling card, whether it's urine, you know, throughout your home range. It's a lot better to carry it with you at all times such that when they do catch up, when the doe is ready and she is the one that, you know, definitely initiates this. And, uh, you know, when she stands, that's when, uh, you know, conception happens. Or So uh, up until then, though, she's in total control of all of this. And it's to her benefit to be carrying the scent of estrus with her. So it's not actually the urine. Many hunters think that it is. Now, the flip side of that is, can urine be an attraction? Absolutely. Given the deer, you know, are so visually oriented, or I'm sorry, uh, you know, all factory oriented mm-hmm. in that sense. So it certainly can attract. Now, there's been some research that looked at the different types of urine. Doe in heat urine, you know, doe that was not in heat urine, buck urine. Uh, actually, they did this uh, at Penn State, uh, my, my alma mater, a long time ago, putting these different urine in scrapes. And what they found out, on one of the scrapes, as a joke, they, they tested new car smell. You know, uh, what even a deer. And uh, they tested new car smell. They tested human urine, buck urine, doe urine, and then doe and heat urine. And what they found was that the human urine and the new car smell attracted just as many bucks as the doe and heat urine did. I'm going to start selling so, my urine. Yeah, so you know what? There's, there's a lot of people out there that, uh, that are filling the scrapes with their own urine. Now, uh, that, that this is not a knock by any means on the urine industry. Urine definitely can attract deer. But uh, the fact that it has to be doe in heat urine, um, that, that is not how bucks can actually tell if a doe is in heat. So uh, they're attracted to it, but uh, mm-hmm. they're not detecting estrus by Okay. Yeah, you know, Aaron Bennett, uh, who, you know, hunts with us, uh, used to work for also us. Also urinates. He, dude, he he always, he swore by peeing in scrapes. He always, he's always done it. And I always would see an in, uh, uptick in increased pictures uh-huh. i just thought he was unique <laughs> but, <laughs> that's also true but but it also yeah. goes to the point where guys are like the debate of whether you should pee in a stand or not you know just off the side i, I and we've always yeah. kind of been in the opinion or, or in the last you know couple of decades anyways that it, it doesn't hurt a thing sure and um i, I what you're saying is that pretty much proof it doesn't hurt anything Just, mm-hmm. if you gotta go go yeah yeah it, it could be uh, a, a positive for <laughs> like eating an apple and throwing the core out <laughs> ridiculous you know, i have I've, I've peed a lot out of stands i am more careful out of a stand than i am in a scrape um i almost always try to urinate on the way to a stand and i actually will stop at a scrape to do it or even make a scrape you know just mm-hmm. to expose that dirt so uh i am i will do that all the time I'm a little more careful about being right at my stand just because I don't want that scent right there if I don't have to. Sure, uh, I got I've, you. I've been in a stand a lot of times and had to pee and uh, so have peed out of the stand. So uh, I, I'm I'm not scared to do that by any means, but but I will actually seek out places where I can pee in uh, in a scrape uh, during deer season. I think that definitely has helped. Team pee scrape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like right. the start of a new show. Let's do it. Maybe we can guess, I bet we can get more followers. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of followers, uh, one of our uh, one of our listeners from Ohio has this week's question of the day. Hi, my name is Brandon Bruce Aber. I'm from Northwestern Ohio. My question is: I know and understand nobody can be totally scent free. Do you? guys ever use or recommend a cover scent i've heard old timers say fox 
urine or anything There's like that. Uh, we should also mention that that question today is probably brought to you by RTP Outdoors, home of the groundbreaking Groundbreaker 3-in-1 food plot implement. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> We're a well-oiled machine. We had, that's been that's been established. But it's it's a great it's a great question because it dovetails right into this question about urine and odor profiles. So, Kip, what do you think about cover scents? Uh, Brandon, I think that's a great question. Uh, I am a big fan of cover scents. I, I am super careful with regard to, to my scent when I'm hunting. Um, now, I. I balance out how I look at this. I have friends that are just way anal over the top of this, and uh, they let their their fear of their scent, um, you know, negatively impact their hunting. So uh, I'm not, you know, to the hundredth degree with cover scent, but I, I am very careful with it. I wash my clothes in a detergent so that you know a scent free detergent. I keep them in uh, totes. Um, you know, I'm extremely careful with you know with what I get on me, you know, while I'm hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but more than anything else, you know, I really pay attention to the wind. I'm fully aware that I cannot cover all of my scent up. You know, deer's nose are just too good. There's been enough uh, research looking at, you know, uh, everything, all the different cover scents that we have and charcoal suits and everything else to show that, you know, uh, we can't completely fool a deer's nose. However, I think we definitely can tip the odds into our favor. So uh, when I go hunting, I have my stuff in a tote. I put it on, careful not to get any other scents on me. I do spray down with a cover scent to try to remove anything that is there. And then uh, I'm just ultra careful about the wind and not only the wind, but paying attention to thermals as well. Um, a lot of hunters will pay attention to the wind and, and forget about thermals. And uh, I think that you can make a mistake with that. So paying attention to what's happening with a rise in air currents or dropping can, uh, can help you tremendously from, uh, you know, watching what scent that is left on you that you can't get rid of where it's going. Sounds good. Now, Kip, what's uh, what's going on with QDMA these days? It's a it's a kind of a crazy world that we're all living in and learning. What how is QDMA responding and surviving the the pandemic? Man, it, it has definitely been crazy. Uh, I have been home more in the past two months than, than I think the last eighteen years I've been with QDMA, and uh, um, so it's been a good thing. Spent a lot of time with my wife and kids, and uh, I think I'm starting to, to bug my wife a little bit. I think she's ready for <laughs> me to get on the road, but. Uh, from our end, we, we've taken a hit just like all the other conservation organizations. Uh, you know, with this hitting in the spring, we do a lot of our fundraising banquets in the spring. Um, almost all of those got postponed or canceled. Uh, we teach our deer steward classes uh, in the spring and summer. Those have been postponed. Um, we do private trainings for state wildlife agencies that have been postponed. So uh, we, we have definitely taken a knock with, uh, you know, the world not being able to travel or mm-hmm. with what's going on uh, I fully recognize that there's, you know, a lot of people out there in a lot worse shape than we are. So I'm not complaining by any means, but uh, definitely has not been business as usual for us. Uh, but uh, we have we have done a, a bunch of other things. Uh, we, we're a big in the educational realm. So uh, at least uh, we, we do have our online deer steward classes and some online stuff that folks can take to, to still continue to learn about deer and how to enhance habitat. So uh, we're doing uh, what we can and uh, looking forward to a little bit of normalcy returning so that we can get together with our deer hunt buddies and, uh, and friends again and, uh, uh, you know, hopefully have a, a little more normal deer season this fall. So if people want to donate to the cause, uh, is there a way to, to do that right now online? Yeah, they absolutely can. They can go to QDMA.com and, uh, and donate. Um, you know, they can uh, they certainly can help by if they want to do any of the educational classes, the online classes we have. 
those uh, help us financially and it allows them to get something out of it as well with regard to, you know, some education on, you know, all aspects of deer and, and habitat and then, you know, and hunter management. So, uh, but uh, yeah, anything like that, we're, we're super appreciative for and uh, look forward to continuing to, to fight hard for all deer hunters. You know, if you guys can out there, you're listening, if, if it you know moves you to do so, the, the, you know, it funds you know, these types of studies, the, the research that comes out of it, I mean, it, it makes us all better in no the doubt. long run, a, a, an organization like QDMA. So it's well worth it. And uh, check it out if, if you haven't already. Yeah. Well, Kip, thanks for hopping on with us. We appreciate it. Uh, uh, we'll make sure that uh, the QDMA gets linked up in the show notes if folks want to go learn more. Uh, and, and we appreciate that. So if you want to leave us a question for the show, go to dreoutdoors.com slash podcast and click the send voicemail button. Leave your name, location, and your question. And we'll get that answered on the air. And uh, tell your friends about the show. Or tell people that aren't your friends. <laughs> <laughs> those people yes <laughs> I mean, I we'll link up the article the original article that we were referencing from outdoor, outdoor life, life. yeah yep. it, it's really interesting so you guys should check it out and, and go give it a read so uh we appreciate you kip and thank you for coming on and spending some time with us today if you need anything if uh, we can ever help please uh reach out we'd be happy to do so all right great to see you guys good talking with you as always and uh, have a good rest of the spring all, all right, right you, too, you man. too see ya all right see ya, see ya.